Hi, and welcome to Wednesdays in the Word. I'm John Seipert, pastor of Preston Highlands Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. On this podcast, I'll be addressing several questions that members of our church have sent in regarding the sermon I preached last Sunday. If you'd like to listen to previous sermons, go to PrestonHighlands.org. Or if you'd like to send in a question, you can email it to john at PrestonHighlands.org. Last Sunday, I preached on the church's unity from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, where Paul calls the church to, quote, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Then Paul tells us what this kind of walk should look like. He says it should be one of humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. He says it'll mean being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then in verse 4, Paul grounds this pursuit of unity in seven cosmic realities. There is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Each of these ones are shared by all Christians everywhere. They describe the invisible unity that believers have in heaven. Paul's argument is thus that local churches should live in light of these cosmic realities. His argument is that the cosmic church should shape the life of the local church. The local church is meant to reveal the glory of the cosmic church. Our position in heaven is meant to shape our life on earth. Thus, since we are united in Christ in the heavenly places in the cosmic church, we should therefore be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, a unity that already exists in the cosmic church. There are undoubtedly many questions that we could seek to answer about the unity of the church, but I'll only focus on three. Three questions that came in this week from the sermon on the church's unity. Question number one, how do we balance Paul's call to be gentle and patient with calls found elsewhere in the Bible to be bold and courageous? One thinks of uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, I believe it is. Be strong and courageous. Let nothing move you, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So how do we balance this call to be gentle and this call to be bold? Uh, Are these things mutually exclusive? Is gentleness possible um, with boldness? Is boldness possible with gentleness? I think that it is. I think that they are possible to be done together. And I'm going to base this, interestingly, right in the same chapter we studied last Sunday. Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 15. And interestingly, this is going to be the text that I preach on this coming Sunday. So in Ephesians 4, verse 13, Paul says that the church must grow and mature together in Christ. And then in verse 14, he says this means not being led astray by false doctrines. And then in verse 15, he says this means that we should speak the truth in love to one another. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are to speak the truth in love to one another. I think this is a good example, maybe a prime example of how we are called to be bold and be gentle at the same time. Speak the truth in love. Love means telling people the truth. Love never means avoiding what's true. True love is built on truth. But we all know, we've all experienced that truthful conversations are really hard, really difficult. You know that having an honest conversation with your friend or with your spouse or with your employer or with your parents or with a sibling, you know that those conversations are incredibly hard. Talking about tough things is difficult. Talking about sin or talking about ways that someone has harmed us or hurt us, even just talking about disputed points of doctrine makes us uneasy and nervous and anxious. And frankly, we'd rather not have these hard conversations, so we often avoid them at all costs. But is this love? Is this love? Is, is avoiding what's true love? Is not saying what's true love? Well, Paul again says, speak the truth in love. And I think doing this, I think speaking the truth in love to one another requires both boldness and gentleness. It requires courage and patience. Hard conversations require you to speak up when you don't want to. And they require you to speak in a way that builds up the other person rather than tears them down. You probably struggle with leaning one way or the other on this. You either struggle with being too gentle and never engaging the hard stuff or being too harsh and too quick to point out what's wrong with no thought about how your words may affect the other person. So I think many of us lean one way or the other and maybe it depends on the day or our, our mood or how tired we are. <laughs> but generally we, we find it difficult to hold these two things in in proper tension and balance at the same time in the same conversation with those we love. So what are we to do? Well, of course, we must look to Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, is our best guide in how to do this. Interestingly, right in this verse, this is Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So as we speak the truth in love, we're growing up into Christ. We're becoming more like Christ. We're maturing in Christ-likeness. Time after time in the Gospels, Jesus engages people, people from all walks of life, strangers and people he knew, with truth and love. Countless times Jesus engaged people with the truth of who he is, the truth of who they were, and yet he did so in a way that drew people in rather than pushed them away. No doubt his anger, Jesus' anger, erupted in the temple 
when he saw the disgusting practice of those using God to turn a profit, uh, of those who were there taking advantage of the people of God. He was furious about that, and he acted accordingly. And yes, he condemns the Pharisees at various points for their false teaching because they're making it harder for people to come to him. So Jesus is not afraid to do or say what is right. But even in these displays of anger and judgment, he's revealing the love of God for those who are far from God. He's doing what's true. He's doing what's right in love, out of love. He's flipping tables over and calling down woes upon the Pharisees out of love, love for the souls of these people he's addressing and out of love for the people of God, the people whom God the Father had sent him to save. He's never afraid to do what's right, but he always does so out of love. So what must we do? Well, I think we pray often that Christ would be formed in us. Just as Paul prayed for the Galatians in Galatians 4.19, that they would be formed, that Christ would be formed in them. So we pray that Christ would be formed in us so that our engagements with others start to reflect him. So that as you talk to people and you have hard conversations with people, the perfect balance of boldness and gentleness that Jesus carried, that Jesus lived out, that would be reflected in your life and your conversations and your relationships. And when this happens, as you pray this way, as you work hard to notice um, where you're leaning, which way you're leaning. Self-awareness is one of the greatest gifts any of us can have. Do you see which way you lean? Do you see how you're overly harsh, how you're quick to speak and slow to listen? Do you see how you're overly lenient and dismissive of real pain, real wounds, real sin, real issues? Do you see how you dismiss those things and, and prefer not to address them because they're difficult? Do you see which way you lean? So be self-aware. See which way you lean. Pray that Christ would be formed in you. And as this happens, this will bless and build the unity of any local church. This will help us as a local church walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. Question number two says this, God promises his saints that they'll be sanctified throughout their lives. Certainly true beliefs about God would be one outcome of sanctification. How can it be then that there are so many Christians bearing clear fruit of regeneration without ever changing their mind on certain doctrines? For example, R.C. Sproul and John Piper come to mind with their differing beliefs on baptism. Shouldn't all Christians become more unified in doctrine as they are more sanctified? This is a really good question, and, and a lot can be said here. The question is basically, as we grow in Christ, shouldn't we also grow in agreement? <laughs> shouldn't we start agreeing with, with each other more and more? And I think the answer is yes and no. Yes, as we grow in Christ, we should grow in agreement, in unity, in the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. As we mature in Christ, we should grow in unity with those other Christians 
in the essential essential doctrines of our faith. But unity in secondary doctrines won't happen quickly and sometimes won't happen ever. Unity in secondary doctrines is something we can work for, pray for, and study for, but it doesn't necessarily reflect growth in Christ. However, how we treat those with whom we disagree does reveal our level of maturity and growth in Christ, and I'll say more about that in a moment. Really, the main idea that I would drive home here is that it's important to make distinctions between doctrines. Some doctrines are more important than others. What you believe about the deity of Jesus Christ is more important than what you believe about baptism. What you believe about baptism is more important than what you believe about the end times. Many churches do this. We distinguish doctrines and we categorize them and we we put them in different hierarchies. We have generally three categories. We have core doctrines, characteristic doctrines, and charity doctrines. Core doctrines or core beliefs are those doctrines that represent historic and orthodox Christianity. In other words, these are the beliefs that are required for you to be a Christian. Core beliefs include the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the Trinity, and the final authority of the Bible. These are non-negotiable doctrines, things that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. But then there's characteristic beliefs. These are doctrines that characterize particular churches or denominations. In other words, there are true churches filled with true Christians who might believe differently than you or your church on these particular beliefs. Some character characteristic beliefs would be baptism, congregational government, Reformed theology, charismatic gifts, and others. Characteristic beliefs characterize a particular church, but they should not be used as tests of faith. Or They aren't core beliefs. They aren't those kinds of beliefs that determine whether someone's a Christian or not. And then thirdly, there's charity beliefs. Charity beliefs. These are doctrines that Christians can agree to disagree on. Charity beliefs include beliefs about the second coming of Christ, the Sabbath versus the Lord's day, the consumption of alcohol, and on and on we could go. 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 teach us how we should relate to one another regarding charity beliefs. These are the kinds of things that we should agree to disagree on, be willing to be members in the same church upon, uh, even disagreeing on these issues. As you grow in Christ, you should become more unified with other believers in core beliefs. You should be more unified with people in your own church in characteristic beliefs of that church, of your church. And as you mature in Christ, you should grow in your own convictions on charity beliefs. You should know what you think about alcohol, what you think about the end times, and what you think about a number of things. But as you grow in your convictions on charity beliefs, you should also understand that not everyone will agree with you, and that's okay. That is okay. One of the clearest marks of maturing in Christ is being able to disagree charitably, of knowing which hills you should die on, of knowing the difference between a core belief 
and a characteristic belief, and a characteristic belief, and a charity belief. Knowing which doctrines you must hold with a closed hand, ones, and ones that you should hold with an open hand. As we grow in these things, as you grow in your ability to discern what kinds of doctrines fall where on this spectrum of core, characteristic, and charity, the church's unity will be built up. The church's unity will be strengthened as we all grow in our understanding of and commitment to the core beliefs of the faith, our understanding of and commitment to the characteristic beliefs in our church, and also our understanding of and love for those with whom we disagree and charity beliefs. Remember again what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that we should speak the truth in love, growing up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Our third and final question is related to the second question, and it has to do with believing false doctrines and how that affects the unity of the church. The question is, is it a sin to believe a false doctrine, assuming it's not a doctrine essential for salvation? If so, how should that affect the way we treat other believers who disagree with us? So is it a sin to believe a false doctrine? Well, yes. <laughs> yes. The reason is a false doctrine would be something that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. So unbelief in one of the core tenets of the faith would therefore disqualify you from the faith because of your unbelief, which is a sin. The disagreement that would arise out of that would be between a believer and an unbeliever, not between two believers. So, yes, believing a false doctrine, something the Bible plainly says is false, would be sin. Not believing something that you must believe to be saved is the sin of unbelief. For example, not believing that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time, without fail, forever would be sin because it would be denying a, tr a truth clearly taught in Scripture. But believing a false doctrine is different than disagreeing on doctrines. Believing something that can be clearly shown to be false from the Scriptures is, as I said, the sin of unbelief. However, believing something that cannot be clearly shown to be false from the Scriptures is not sin because it's not clear what the Scriptures teach. For example, I think that the Bible teaches that only believers should be baptized. I think that's clear in Scripture, <laughs> and I think people who don't think that are wrong. But obviously, not all believers see this issue as clearly as I do. For much of the history of the church, infants have been baptized. Those who aren't believers have been baptized out of a desire to follow the pattern of the scriptures. Both sides of the, the pedo-baptizers, the infant-baptizers, and the believer-baptizers, both sides think that the Bible clearly teaches their position. But the millennia-long debate on this issue suggests otherwise. So is it a sin to believe false doctrine? Yes. But this only applies to doctrines that are clearly taught in the scriptures and upheld by the church and necessary for salvation. Not all doctrines can be demonstrably proved to be false. 
Thus, those who disagree about second and third tier doctrines are not sinning. This goes back to question number two. Those who disagree with you on characteristic or charity beliefs are not sinning. If they were, if that was the case, then that would mean that every Christian who disagrees with any other Christian on these doctrines would be in sin. And the only way to repent would be for them to go against their own conscience and start believing something that they haven't seen clearly taught, taught in the Bible. <laughs> and that doesn't seem wise or loving. Martin Luther famously said, it is neither safe nor wise to go against one's conscience. So, yes, of course, it's sin to believe in a false doctrine. I think the question, though, assumes that all doctrines are equal or without qualification. And so I would refer the listeners back to question number two. There are differences in importance of doctrines. We don't treat all doctrines the same. And so... If someone denies a core belief, then we treat them as an unbeliever. If you deny the Trinity, you are not a Christian. If you deny the deity of Christ, you are not a Christian. If you deny the final authority of the Bible, you are not a Christian. So if you deny believer's baptism and you're convinced after wrestling with Scripture that it's okay to baptize babies, that's not the same as denying the deity of Christ. That's not sin. That doesn't inhibit you from going to heaven one day. Now, of course, as I said before, how you do that, how you relate to those with whom you disagree with on charity beliefs and characteristic beliefs really is the more fundamental question here as it relates to the unity of the church. We must not see those who don't take our view on secondary matters like baptism, the charismatic gifts, Calvinism, church polity, and many other topics. We must not see those who disagree with us on these things as the enemy. In the gospel, they are our brother or sister in Christ. Our love for them, our love for those with whom we disagree will reveal that we belong to Jesus. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Loving each other doesn't mean you affirm people who are believing false doctrines, core beliefs. Loving one another, though, I think does mean that you are willing to engage and speak with those who disagree with you on any number of other secondary and tertiary matters. Now, our disagreements on those matters may mean that we can't be members in the same church, but they don't mean that we can't love one another and speak charitably to one another. It's good and right for us to study these characteristic beliefs and these charity beliefs and come to some conclusions of our own to know what we believe and why. But when we start developing suspicion and skepticism for those who don't share our views or we think they're, you know, they're not Calvinistic enough or they're not complementarian enough or they're not 
Baptist enough. You know, when we start thinking that way, we start using these issues to question their faithfulness to the gospel. I think we're bringing unnecessary division into the house of God. And if we start sowing disunity over secondary matters, we could even be helping the evil one divide what Jesus died to unite. Paul's instructions in Romans 14 are so helpful for us on this. We should, he says in verse 5, be fully convinced in our own mind. And then verse 19, we should pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So, yes, it is a sin to believe false doctrines, but it's not a sin to disagree on secondary and tertiary doctrines. And as we disagree lovingly, we build and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in our local churches. That's all for this episode of Wednesdays in the Word. Thanks for sending in your questions. If you want to listen to previous sermons, go to PrestonHighlands.org. Or if you'd like to send in a question, you can email it to john at PrestonHighlands.org. Until next week, may God use all of us for His glory in this generation.